Well, good morning. My name is Nick, just in case you forgot. It's like it's been a while. I've missed you. You miss me? Okay, good. Just make sure. Just make sure. Uh, if you're just now joining us, we're in the midst of a series we're calling The Waiting Room. Let's just go ahead and say it right off the top. Waiting stinks. Can I get an amen? We don't like to wait. Y'all are my favorite service, though, by the way. 1045 traditional. They actually hear you. You're a little rowdy. You rowdy this morning? I'm going to need something from you. We are convinced that waiting is a bad thing. We're not patient people. In fact, I came across some research this past week that really exposes our impatience. This speaks about all of us in the room, and I think it's great because it nails us on the head. It says, more than half of Americans will honk their horn within the first second after the light turns green. Ugh. You hear that? I'm, I'm going already, right? The average American will binge watch seven episodes of television in one sitting. Thanks to Netflix, right? We now can stream. We don't have to wait a whole week for our favorite episode to come out. We can just watch a whole season in one sitting. It's great. It's fantastic. I don't think this is accurate. I think it's worse than this. This, this next one. Any, who used to work in a restaurant? Anybody? I, you want to know how impatient people are? Go work at a restaurant. And sadly, the one that I, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, because you're all thinking about going to lunch after this. The restaurant I worked at for the longest time, nobody wanted to work Sundays. Because they didn't like putting up with church folks. So if you go to a restaurant today, don't be a jerk, okay? Let's be kind. But this one blew my mind. I think it's worse than this. And you might, you might think so too. 25% of people will go to the host or the hostess in one minute or less after the wait time is up. So they tell you 30 minutes, 31 minutes, you're going to, is my table ready yet? Right? One minute after the wait time. Give it a buffer. Give it a little buffer. They're doing, I promise you, they're doing the best they can. Right? Sometimes we just got to start with the fact that we can afford to go to a restaurant and pay other people to serve us food. Like, start with that and then maybe treat people with decency. Can I get an amen? Somebody say amen. I'm just putting it out there. All right, this one's great because I love watching this happen. 72% of people will push an already lit elevator button. Right? <laughs> Not just once, but it's like, come on, right? And then here's, here's the best save the best for last. 96% of Americans will knowingly consume extremely hot food or drink that we know will burn our mouths. Pizza, yeah? You got the reverse blow tactic. <laughs> like the next day, the skin's hanging off the roof of your mouth, but it's so worth it. It's fantastic. We're talking about the waiting room, though. And I think we've done a good job of this throughout the series. We're not just talking about our lack of patience. That's part of it, right? But really, what makes waiting so difficult is the uncertainty that goes along with it. That's what a waiting room is. It isn't just that you're waiting and you're bored, you're waiting and you're not really sure what's going to happen. Or at the same time, you can't speed it up, you can't slow it down, you can't go back, and you can't see what's ahead of you, right? So that feeling of kind of helplessness. So, what we're talking about when we talk about the waiting room are these seasons of uncertainty. At the same time, the Bible often describes, describes it as, as the wilderness. It's this sort of middle place, right, where things aren't like they used to be, but they aren't how we want them to be yet either. Things have changed, but they haven't resolved, right? They, they have sort of shifted, but they haven't settled. That's what we've been talking about uh, throughout this series. But this morning, I want to take it in a slightly different direction. Because up to this point, 
the waiting rooms that we've talked about have in large part been mostly to do with things that come our way that were really out of our control. You've learned that by now, right? In life, things are going to happen you didn't see coming. Things you can't really do a whole lot about. Things that aren't, aren't always your fault, right? We've talked about those kind of waiting rooms over the past couple of weeks. But this morning, I want to talk about the kind of waiting rooms that you and I have a large hand in actually causing. The kind of waiting rooms we create for ourselves. I'm calling this morning, Waiting on Ourselves, the title of the message. We're going to be in the book of Judges. Uh, it's page 171, by the way, if you want to use the Bible uh, in your pew, you can check it out. Book, book of Judges, chapter 2, but I got to kind of set this up a little bit for you before we get into the text. The book of Judges as a whole, is it, it kind of like covers this period of history for the Israelites that was like one big fat waiting room. It was this big in-between place. The whole book is. The book of Judges covers the time from between Joshua and the kings. Several hundred years, right, in between Joshua and the kings. Y'all remember who Joshua was? He's the guy that took over for Moses after Moses died, right? And people have been wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. Joshua's the guy who actually leads them into the promised land. But here's the thing. Even though they're in the land, they don't possess it yet. Because it's still full of other people, other nations, other tribes, and they're sort of living there with them. So they're in this big in-between place. They're in the land, but they don't possess it. And before Joshua dies, he gives this great speech. I mean, it's like Mel Gibson Braveheart speech, right? This great speech where he's urging the people to stay faithful to their true king. Y'all say true king. Say that. He's pleading with them, stay faithful to your true king, to Yahweh, to your God, to the one who delivered your people out of Egypt, to the one who's been with you every single day of the 40 years in the wilderness. Don't forget about God. Stay faithful to God. And do that specifically by staying faithful to the law. You see, Israel as a nation was never meant to have a human king, a president, a king, a martyr, nothing. They were never meant to have that. They were meant from the beginning to be a people ruled, governed by a law. Now, that sounds kind of cold and sterile when you use the word law. We're not just talking about arbitrary rules. The law was meant to be like, a, like an ethic. It was, a, it was a code of living. It was a way of life where if everybody committed to it, everybody would be better off for it. And so God's intention is that there would never be a king ruling over them, but they would be people whose hearts were after God and were committed to the way of God. And so right before he dies, Joshua gives this great speech. He's like, listen, I'm urging you. I got one final request. You know, before he's like, I got one final request, right? He's just laying it on thick. Be faithful, stay true. And it works. I mean, it moves the people. It's this incredible scene of them. Joshua, we're going to be faithful. Anybody ever grow up going to like church camp in the summer? Like Christian church camp, it's different. You don't just go and like shoot bow and arrows. Like every single night you got somebody preaching. And it's always like big. The last night's like the big one. They usually call it the cry night, you know. And this is when everybody makes these huge, like their huge decisions. They're breaking up with their girlfriend. They're like burning their CDs. They're getting rid of all their posters. It's like, I'm, not, I'm getting rid of it. It's like that. That's the scene at the end of Joshua. Everybody's like, we're in, right? Let's listen to what they say back to Joshua. It's big. Y'all out there, my rowdy folks. Joshua 24. These are the people responding back to Joshua. Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We would never do that. 
It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. (sighs) Right? It's huge. This is how the book ends. Judges is the next book in the Bible. It is the next book in the story of the people of God. And it picks up right where Joshua ends. I'm telling you right now, the flowers from Joshua's funeral aren't even dead yet. And the people are already going back on their word. In chapter 2 of Judges, you find this great summary. It's like this real succinct summary of the entire book. You want to know what the book of Judges is about? Just read this chapter, right? It'll tell you. But listen to this. Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. He had great skin. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gesah. Verse 10, listen to this. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew the, knew the Lord, nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and Asherah. Baal and Asherah were like husband and wife deity of the Canaanite people, the people who had moved into the land while Israel was in Egypt. And what we got to understand is that is God's call for fidelity, for them to worship him only. It wasn't like God's up there like, I don't want you to like anybody else, just me. But really his concern was also with the way of life that went along with worshiping some of these other gods. We can, we can learn about this from history. It's some nasty stuff. I mean, in, in Canaan, there was regular practice of child sacrifice. I mean, it was pretty, pretty, pretty wild stuff. And so God's not only concerned with, you know, who they're giving credit to, but God's also concerned with the way of life that goes along with being committed to these other gods. Are you with me? I think it's important for us to kind of capture that. Verse 14, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Verse 16, here's where the judges come into play. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies. As long as the judge lived, for the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices. So I'm not sure if you caught it, but there is this sort of pattern. There's this cycle that shows up in the book of Judges. Did you notice it? It's in, it in that text, but it keeps going throughout the entire book. It usually begins with some form of disobedience, right? The people are looking around. They're like, hmm, that looks good. I'll have some of that, right? And how all, all these other people are living, the things that they're doing, and they get to this point, point. we've probably been there before, probably where it's like, you know what? I'm tired of doing this things this way. I'm going to do them my way. 
sort of the, I've heard it called the underbelly of the American dream is that I'm going to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want. And nobody can tell me otherwise. Sort of find themselves falling into that place. They move in that direction, some sort of disobedience, which then results in distress. It's like they get a hold of it and they're like, ah, I'm not sure I like this anymore. I'm not really sure that they want it. I think it's ironic that the people that Israel wanted to be like became the people who actually ruled over them. It's a little ironic, isn't it? Verse 14 is, is really telling when it says that God sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. This expression of freedom resulted in the loss of freedom. It ended up in slavery. And then in the midst of this distress, they cry out to God, God, rescue us, forgive us. We're, we're going we're to go back to cry night at camp, right? Rescue us. And no matter how many times this happened, guess what? God showed up. God delivered them. God rescued them. But after a while, this pattern, this cycle would repeat itself. Repeat itself. I'm going to tell you right now. The book of Judges is an incredibly dark book. It's a dark book. You don't see this one flannel graft very often in Sunday school classes because it's dark and it's disturbing. There's things that you read in this book that make you want to take a shower. It's bad. The last two chapters of Judges, darkest chapters, probably anything I've ever read in my entire life. If you're reading the Bible right now with your kids or your grandkids, skip this one, okay? Wait till they're a little older, all right? But here's the thing. It's part of our story, and it has a lot to teach us, a whole lot to teach us. I mean, if you're anything like me, that pattern, that cycle, it's a little familiar, isn't it? Maybe not when it comes to like raiders or other nations, but we've all been there. We've got that thing that continually gets the best of us, right? We, we, give, we give into it. We get caught up with it. And after a while, it starts to own us and we get uncomfortable. So what do we do? We cry out to God, God, help me out here. Bail me out of this one. Fix it for me. And I promise you what? I'll never do it again. And then it happens. It gets resolved. We experience a little bit of peace and quiet. And we get comfortable, and then we start telling ourselves, yeah, you know what? It wasn't that bad. It really wasn't that bad. Maybe I can just kind of hang out with it a little bit. And before you know it, where are we at? We're right back into it. This cycle repeats itself. We know about this, don't we? Do you ever feel like you're your own worst enemy? Like you just keep getting in your own way? This is really what I want us to talk about this morning. And here's a central question. What if we are what we are waiting for? What if it's us? And I want to talk about these waiting rooms that we tend to create for ourselves. A lot of them come because of things that we can't control. But a lot of the waiting rooms we find ourselves in, these seasons of uncertainty where things feel like they're a mess, we create some of those too, don't we? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Y'all with me? You can't leave now. We'll see you walk out. You're stuck, all right? But my hope is that, yes, this is challenging, but I hope it's also encouraging because this is all of us. The book of Judges is our story too. We know this all too well. Am I right? So how do we navigate these waiting rooms? Well, here's where I think it starts. Imagine this. Imagine how much trouble we could save ourselves if we could learn to hit the pause button. Take a moment. Take a time out. Take a step back. Hit the pause button. Get some perspective. Are you with me? Think about that throughout your life. <laughs> think backwards. How much trouble could you have saved yourself from if you would have just hit the pause button Proverbs 21 verse 5 says that haste leads to poverty. 
Perhaps the most famous judge of all, this guy named Samson, the dude with the hair and the muscles, you know, he had a soft spot for pretty women. This guy, man, in so many ways, he's not a hero, by the way. He's really not. A lot of these judges, what they do is they sort of embody and personify the people's dysfunction. They like live it out for us to watch and learn from. Samson is incredibly impulsive. Throughout his whole story, all these things that happen, all these incidences of him being hasty, of being uh, indulgent, of, of being impulsive. There's one incident that's like, it's over the top. I mean, it's ridiculous. His father-in-law, who's a Canaanite, uh, Philistine, actually insults him, sort of slights him a little bit. And so he decides it's his right to get revenge. But here's what he thinks is fair. He goes and he captures 300 fox or foxes. What's plural fox? Come on, last service said it was foxes. Is that right? Fox eye? (laughs) Foxy? I don't know. He caught a bunch of fox, right? 300 of them, and he tied them together by their tails, two, two by two. And then he went and he got a torch. He lit, lit the torch and put it in between each of the fox, and he let them loose in the grain fields of the Philistines and burnt everything down to the ground. It's like, yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. Well, then they get all mad. They retaliate. And before the end of the story, all these people have died. I mean, it's just like, how many times throughout the story man, would things have been different if Samson would just would have went, hit the pause button, bro. Take a time out. Take a step back. Get a little perspective here. I've heard it said the only thing harder than waiting is wishing that you had. Am I right? The only thing harder than waiting is is wishing that you had. Because when it comes to things like haste or to lust or to impulse, indulgence, those times in our lives where we get sort of reachy, you know what I'm talking about. When it comes to those seasons, what often happens is you and I, we get so fixated on the thing that we want, the person we want, the place, whatever it is. We get so fixated on that that we become blinded to what it's going to cost us. Because there's always a cost. That's what Proverbs is talking about. When it says poverty leads, uh, or haste leads to poverty, there's always a cost involved. That affair is going to cost you something. It might cost you some, some aspect of a relationship with your kids. That underhanded business deal nobody saw that you got away with, made a whole bunch of money. It'll cost you. It will cost you. You make enough bad decisions when it comes to your health. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cost you something. They call this the law of, of uh, sowing and reaping. The scariest thing about that law, though, is it's not immediate. Like other laws, like the law of gravity, you jump off something, you fall down right away. Am I right? The dangerous thing about the law of sowing and reaping, sometimes it takes a while. You can sow it and think you're getting away with it, but we reap what we sow. There's always a cost involved. And I wonder how much trouble. And if we would step back for a second, hit the pause button, answer the phone. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Who is it? Let me talk to him. Somebody order me a pizza. That's being hasty. Okay. Refocus. But here, here's, here's the thing. Most of the time, we don't really want what we think we want. I'm going to say it again. It's a little confusing. We don't, though, do we? We don't really want what we think we want. And you don't often have perspective on this till later when you look back. Y'all probably had this experience. The girl I dated before I met my wife. It's like my first serious relationship I ever had. I wanted to marry her. I thought she was it. I'm going to marry this girl. It didn't happen, and we broke up, and I felt it was awful. You remember your first breakup? It was awful. I was a mess. 
I remember praying that prayer. God, just give her back to me. Like whatever, you, whatever you want, I'll go wherever. Just give her back. He did. It didn't happen. We didn't get married. And now, looking back, you know what I'm like? Shoo! Thank you, Jesus. Seriously, thank you, Jesus. Now she's not some monster. She's a great person, but we just would have been awful for each other. But that perspective is something you have later. Are you with me? So I think what this helps is that sometimes we have to be open to the fact in the waiting room, no is an answer. It's an answer. It may not be the answer we want, but it might actually end up being the answer that we need. There are two things I think I really want to say, though, right here. Because I can imagine there's some people in the room that, that need to hear it. Um, the first one is when we're in the middle of these kind of waiting rooms, the ones that we make for ourselves, right, on the other side of impulse, haste, whatever you want to call it. We're in the middle of that. We cannot mistake consequences for condemnation. Can't do that. When you're blowing it, when you messed up, you've got to understand there's going to be consequences for that. There is. But that doesn't mean that God's condemned you. Those are two very different things. In the book of Judges, we see that, you know, what God does is God doesn't get vindictive with the people. They keep insisting they want something. So what's God do? He lets them have it. it says that he handed them over to these people. You really want to be like them? Fine. Go be like them. See how that works out for you. I think often that's how God's discipline works. It's not vindictive. It's not God smiting people because they didn't do what he wanted. Often it's God's like, hey, you want that? Fine, I'll let you have it. And God also allows us to experience consequences for bad decisions that we made. And when we're in the middle of experiencing that, we cannot mistake it for condemnation. Like I said, there's consequences for, for being unfaithful in a relationship. That relationship where there might be forgiveness and you guys might continue to exist, it may not look the same. It may look different on the other side of it. At the same time, when we make bad financial decisions for a big chunk of our life, retirement may not look like we want it to. It may not happen as soon as we wanted it to. And again, you make unhealthy decisions when it comes to your body. You might find yourself in a doctor's office hearing news you didn't want to hear. But in all of those circumstances, it does not mean that God's condemned you or God's given up on you. Remember, every single time the people cried out to God, God showed up. When we buy into condemnation in the middle of that, what we often do is also buy into this lie that just because it's bad means it'll never be good again. God can be with us in the midst of those. And God can create a new normal on the other side. Are you with me? It can still be good again. Second thing I want to say some of us in the room. Some of us are here right now and we're in this waiting room because of somebody else's poor choice, a spouse, a parent, somebody we're close to made a destructive decision and we're the ones fitting the bill for it. I can imagine there's some people in the room here today and that's you. The first thing I want to say to you is I'm sorry. I recognize that. It hurts. I'm very sorry. I want to encourage you. If you haven't yet, listen to the first two weeks of the series. I think you might find some helpful things in those sermons. And keep listening as we wrap up. I think you'll hear something that will be encouraging for you. But I, let's all just agree to do this. Let's not make the same mistakes. Let's not do it too. Because remember, there's always a cost involved. And sadly, sometimes the people we love the most end up fitting the bill. Are you with me? Are you with me? me come out there and sit with you? Because I'll do it. But when it comes to navigating these waiting rooms, right, these, these, we, we have to hit the pause button. 
We also have to get honest. I mean, like really get honest, brutally honest with ourselves. Proverbs chapter 30, there's this really great prayer in the middle of this chapter. And I've been going back to it over the last six months on a regular basis because I think it's so powerful. It's really short. I'm going to read you the whole thing real quick. It says this, two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Don't you love the boldness in that prayer? I'm going to tell you something. I want you to listen. I love that. Just keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. I love this prayer and I really like how it begins. He prays, Lord, keep falsehood and lies far from me. Now, some read this as him saying, God, you see all those liars, all those cheaters out there? Keep them away from me. Keep them a distance. I don't want them anywhere near me. You could read it that way. But as I read throughout that prayer, it's a prayer of incredible self-awareness. It's like, God, don't give me too much. I know myself. I know what I'll do with it. You give me too much, it's not going to go well for either of us. That's self-awareness. So I would argue that when he's praying, keep falsehood lies far from me. You know what he's praying? God, keep me from buying into my own baloney. Keep me from believing my own lies. Keep me from believing the stories that I make up so that it doesn't have to be my fault. Keep me from believing that because that's what we do, isn't it? Man, when we blow it, when we fall face down, when, we, when something go, doesn't go the way we want it to, and we mess up and we're in that waiting room, man, our brain goes to work real fast. Trying to come up with these stories and these excuses so that we can keep it from being our fault. And just this past week, a little self-revealing right here. This past week, I decided to make chocolate chip muffins for my kiddos. Homemade chocolate chip muffins. Mmm, sounds good, doesn't it? They look good, but I decided because I'm eating clean right now that I wasn't going to have any, at least until everybody went to bed. <laughs> it's lint. It's like a tree falls in the forest, nobody sees it. Did it actually happen, right? As long as I eat it, nobody's there. I didn't eat a muffin, but I knew as soon as I ate the muffin, this was going to be a thing. And here's why. Because before the kids went to bed, there were enough muffins for all of them to have one for breakfast in the morning. Now there was one short. I was like, oh no, this is going to be bad. And it was bad. They wake up right away. Who ate the muffin? And then of course, dad, did you eat the muffin? God denied it. No, I didn't eat the muffin. Are you kidding me? I'm like on a diet. I didn't eat the muffin. I even came up with this really ridiculous hypothesis about how it could have been the dog. I mean, the dog might have got up on top of the toaster oven somehow and delicately plucked a muffin out of the muffin tin and left the rest of them there. I don't know. Maybe it was our dog. Maybe it was Riggins. My wife stopped me in the middle of that and goes, honey, you still have chocolate on your face. <laughs> we do this, though, don't we? When we blow it, when we mess up, when we do something we shouldn't have done, man, we work real hard. We go real fast trying to come up with all these stories and ways to keep it from being our fault. Brene Brown, some of you have heard of her. She's a research psychologist. Uh, she's one of my favorite authors, thinkers, really just one of my favorite human beings. I highly recommend all of the books she's ever read. They're so helpful. But I'm reading one right now. It's called Rising Strong. And it's all about this process that she's identified from her research. This process that healthy people, what she calls wholehearted people, this process that they use to get back up after they've blown it. And it is so helpful. But part of this process, she calls it the rumble. I love that, don't you? 
But it's all about fact-checking the stories we tell ourselves. I just want to read you a little bit from this book. Then you can go out and buy it yourself. It says this, The minute we find ourselves face down, our minds go to work trying to make sense of what's happening. The story is driven by emotion and the immediate need to self-protect, which means it's most likely not accurate, well thought out, the muffin, or even civil. They tend to get pretty nasty, these stories that we make up right after we've blown it. In fact, if your very first story is any of these, these things, you're either an outlier or you're not being fully honest. She goes on to say this, and I think this is the important thing for us to hear. When we depend on self-protecting narratives, often enough, they become our default stories. And as a result, we keep tripping over the same issues, staying down when we fall, and having different versions of the same problem in our relationships. We've got our story on repeat. Whew. There's a whole lot of wisdom in that. And I've seen it in my own life and in other people time and time again. We've got to fact check our stories. It's like the person who has the same issue everywhere they work. You know what I'm talking about? Everywhere they work, it's like it's the same problem. It follows them around from job to job to job to job. At some point in time, we've got to stop and think, are there problems that follow me around? Do I have the same problem everywhere I go? Because maybe, what's the common denominator? It's you. Sometimes that stinky smell, it's on the bottom of your shoe, right? Walking around, something stinks in here. Yeah, check your shoe. But I think we got to be aware of this. You know, we, we, make the same, we make the same excuses. Or it's like the person who, who will say uh, something happens, there's a, there's a break, they have to fix something, a major repair. And it's catastrophic. And it's, I don't know why this is happening to me. It's life. <laughs> it's what it is. And I think I wish we could step back and look. Is this catastrophic because of the repair? Or is this catastrophic because of our relationship with our finances? And I know there are some people who don't have enough resources to make ends meet. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about those of us who make plenty enough money, but we still live paycheck to paycheck and we max out credit cards. And so then, yes, when something difficult happens, something breaks down, we freak out because we don't have the means to pay for it. Let's get honest here. What's the problem? What's the real problem? Are you following me? Sorry if I'm stepping on your toes. Understand, my toes got smashed first, okay? Or take issues in a, in a relationship, in a marriage. I can usually tell pretty quickly if we're gonna, I'm going to get anywhere with, with a couple when they meet with me. And it usually has to do with how entrenched they are in their own story, their own narrative for why things are the way they are. I've, in my experience, almost every single time, both people are somewhat responsible for what's going on in the relationship. Right? And if you can get both people to focus on their part of it, you can actually get somewhere. But I'm going to tell you right now, that's one of the hardest things to do. They come in with their lists. They're convinced. Well, if they would stop doing this and they would stop doing that, and they would just be, then we wouldn't have this problem. But if you can get both people to own their stuff, to be brutally honest about themselves and work on that, you can actually get somewhere. Are you with me? Now, I'm not saying that whenever we find ourselves in these waiting rooms, we have to own all of it. Some of us have a bad habit of doing that. We don't let anybody else apologize for things they should apologize for. We do it first. I'm not talking about that. But I think all of us, there are some things that we need to own. We've got to be honest with ourselves about ourselves. One last thought 
and I'll send you to lunch to be nice to your servers, okay? And tip well. Go back to Judges with me. The real problem for the people during this period wasn't that they were surrounded by all of these bad people that God needed them to deliver, deliver them from. That wasn't their real problem. That was a problem. You know what the real problem was? They lacked a heart of devotion. That's their real problem. He said they, they wanted all the benefits of being the people of God, but they didn't want to commit to the way of life that went along with it, with the fidelity, the devotion that went along with it. So getting out of these self-constructed waiting rooms, ultimately it's going to require you and I to move from deliverance to devotion, to have a heart after God, the things of God, the way of God. And I found that, man, I, I look back on my sermons. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and apologize. I talk about this a lot. I do. It comes up in a lot of my sermons. But I think it's something that we need to hear. Because in my experience, for a lot of us, myself included, God is not some king that we're devoted to. God's more like this consultant we keep on retainer. Like, think about it. In the waiting room, one of the hardest things about waiting rooms is that we feel like God's distant or God doesn't care, right? But most of the time, we live our lives completely unconcerned with where God is or what God thinks until it gets a little sticky, until it gets difficult. Then all of a sudden, we want to know where God's at. God, are you even noticing this? Where are you? But a better question really is, where have we been the whole time? I mean, are we devoted to who God is? And what God's about. And this is, this is so central for me because I'm not afraid to admit, I got a lot of questions when it comes to the Jesus stuff. I do really do. I got a lot of questions when it comes to God, faith, Bible, all that. But there's one thing I'm sure of is that the way of Jesus is the most beautiful way to live. It is the most beautiful way to live. It's not easy, but a life of generosity and forgiveness and grace and all of that. It's the most beautiful way to live. And that's the invitation, isn't it? Jesus doesn't invite us to just come and believe this stuff. Jesus invites us to come and follow, to actually pattern our lives around who he is and what he's about. So if you're in a waiting room and you're uncomfortable, you're in this room, you know what? The only way out of it, you got to move into a different room. You got to step into a new room. If you want things to be different, you have to commit to doing different things. And right here, I could share with you the, the well-known quote about insanity, couldn't I? Insanity is doing the same thing, but expecting it to turn out differently. And so if you're here today, we're going to, in a moment, we're going to go through one last time of worship. But I want you to do it. Don't rush out of here. Invite the Holy Spirit to reveal to you. What's the next right thing you need not to believe, not to think about? What's the next right thing you need to do? When that area in your life that keeps tripping you up, the unhealth, what's it look like for you in that place? to begin to move towards health? What's it look like for you to allow God to decide how you should live in that area of your life? What's the next thing you need to do? Can I pray for us? God, we thank you so much for your word, and for your truth. We thank you that, Lord, no matter how many times, how many times we turn our back on you, you never quit on us. So Lord, I just pray in this space, in this time together, that your Holy Spirit just moves among us. That, Lord, you speak to us. You really speak to us. You make it clear. What is that next right thing we need to do? Maybe it's getting rid of something. 
Maybe it's putting down some boundaries. Maybe it's breaking off a relationship. Maybe it's coming clean and telling the truth. Well, whatever it is, Lord, just show us what we need to do from here. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.